0: We've got a few more uh, parts to this series um, in which King Solomon, at the end of his life, um, after having experimented with trying to get meaning and fulfillment and, and um, satisfaction out of life, uh, at the end of his life, writes this book to teach us. And so uh, some have questioned why would this be in the Bible? This is a, a book that just seems pretty depressing. I mean, if somebody's struggling maybe with suicidal thoughts or just struggling with, with life in general, you might not want to point them to Ecclesiastes. Because uh, sometimes you just want to say, you know, Solomon, do you need a hug? You know, or a Xanax, or something of that sort, uh, or a Tic Tac. I don't know. Um, but so, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to read down... Uh, verse 1 through verse 12. And so if you would, hear the word of God. But all of this he laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is to love or hate, man does not know both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event, event happens to the righteous and to the wicked. And to the good and to the evil. To the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. He who swears is he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. While they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope. For as a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you um, that you have given us these words from Ecclesiastes. Um, that we might learn from him, and so Lord, I pray this morning we would hear from you, that you would challenge our hearts, that you which would, would, would teach us, particularly the good news of your son Jesus, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So Solomon writes this book, not as philosophical musings he 's not, he's not a ninth grade or a, a, a freshman class. Um, philosophy teacher teaching us about the meaninglessness of life or anything like that solomon is teaching us wisdom he's this is practical wisdom stuff and what he's really doing here throughout this book in my opinion he is giving us a series of wake-up calls and we've said a wake-up call is a person or thing that causes people to become fully alert to an unsatisfactory situation and to take action to remedy it. It's something that happens, something said, something, an event in which it gets our attention and causes us perhaps to make a change in how we view the world, how we are doing things. how we. Some people call this a tipping point. But whatever you call it, Solomon is giving us a series of harsh words to get our attention. And so this week's wake-up call is no less harsh than ones that we've seen already. And the wake-up call this morning is, wake-up call, you are going to die. As a matter of fact, we all are going to die. Now, I'm pretty sure this is not news to you. Most of us have clued in that none of us make it out of this life alive. That that all of us, at one point in our lives, are going to face the inevitable. We're going to talk about that. But the problem is we don't like to talk about this. We don't like to think about it. It seems too morbid. It seems terrifying. And so we just tend to try to sweep this thing under the rug. And we'll postpone it for later. I mean, at the least, we might do a, a, a life insurance policy or something of that sort to somewhat prepare for it. But none of us, you know, are really thinking about it. Now, when we get a little bit older, the older you get, and your, your loved ones, your, your parents pass away or your grandparents pass away. Like in 2016, both of my grandmothers died, and I, I, was a, I buried them. I was a pastor that buried them, and I began to think more about my mortality. But by and large, I don't want to think about that. And Solomon wants us to think about it because it's important to think about it. It is important to, 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 uh, to consider this truth. Okay? Our, and, and he said this at the very beginning. And this is really reiterating and somewhat the first wake-up call is life is vanity. It's a major theme in this book. He uses the word vanity 38 times in the 12 chapters. And it, the word vanity is the Hebrew word havel, which is a vapor. It's just a mere mist. Here for a moment, gone the next. Now, but now he wants to specifically for us to focus on the fact that we are going to die. So that's the uh, first idea here is you are going to die. <laughs> right? Uh, now, cheer up everybody. You're going to die. Um, here's the thing. Our death is inevitable. And, and, and But he lays out several truths about the inevitability, the, the, the reality of our impending death. And he wants us to see, okay? The first of these is, we see in verse 2, death is inevitable. Look at in verse 2 with me. He says, okay, it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous, and to the wicked, and to the good, and to the evil, to the clean, and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices, and him who does not sacrifice. So, it does, so in other words, in whatever station of life you're in, whether you've been a good guy or a bad guy, whether you've been religious or not religious, whether you have been wealthy or poor, whatever your life has looked like, the same event is going to happen to you that's going to happen to everybody in this room. You're going to die. It's going to happen. It is inevitable. It's going to happen. It might happen as soon as you leave here. You might have 80 years ahead of you. But the event is going to happen. The same event happens to all of us. Now, he wants to point out another idea with this as well. Is that, that this event happens, but, but that it is not a good thing. And so, the, the idea that, that death is evil. Look in verse 3. He says... This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, after they go up to the dead. So, he's saying, death in itself is evil. It is not a natural event. And we know, and Solomon knew, the words of Moses, back in the Old Testament, you know, at the beginning, that death was not, Something that was naturally created by God and was not declared, ever declared good. But death was the result of Adam and Eve's the rebellion, humankind's rebellion and sin against God. So evil is, is, is in itself not natural and bad. And this is where we got to be careful. Because our world in facing death kind of has two extremes. And one extreme, death, is we sentimentalize it. Oh, they went to a better place. You know they'll be remembered. You know we have like a little slideshow and it looks pretty and all this stuff. And we kind of sentimentalize the idea of death. Um, on the other side is that we are terrified of it. We avoid it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. We don't want to talk about it. And we run from it. And these are the two extremes. And uh, I would say there's a, a healthy middle to say that death is not a good thing. Death is not natural. However, we'll talk about this a little bit later, it's not the end. That we have a hope. And this is what Tim Keller calls having a hopeful pessimism in death. But see, it's not that death in itself is, itself is evil, for sure, and death itself is a bad thing. But, but here's the thing, it's is how death works, is what Solomon wants to get at here, is that death is indiscriminate of how good you are or how bad you are in this life we said last week, you know, why do good things happen to bad people? The reality is, we should ask the question, why do good things happen to all of us bad people? And that's the reality is, none of us really are good. But the reality, if you look at it, and you look at death, and you see how death operates, we have to say, death is a terrible thing. You know, when, when, when teenagers' lives are taken from them so early, even a few weeks ago, You think, this is not right. This is not natural. Um, A guy named David Gibson, in speaking about dying, and dying well, as he called it, he says this about death. To die well means I realize death is not simply something that happens to me. It happens to me because I am a sinner. I realize, in a sense, I caused my own death. To die well means I realize every time I see a coffin it preaches to me um, that life is broken and fallen and under the curse of death and I am a part of it. It means I realize that I am not owed three score years and ten by God. It is only by His mercy that I am not consumed today. I would say that's living well. We're going to talk about that. And so He's saying that death is an evil thing and how it operates is evil because we are evil. And that's the part of the life that we are in. Okay, next thing he points out here is that death is the close. And I'm using this word intentionally here. Death is the close. Look in verses four um, through six with me. He says, For he who is joined with all the living has hope. For For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. What he's trying to say here is, when you die, your life is over. Any opportunity to do something, to think something, to hope something, to live something, to do it. It's over. It is the close. The chapter is over. It is done. There's no do-overs, is what he's trying to say here. And that's why, because that's why he uses this analogy. It's, it's better to be a, an alive dog than and, than a dead lion. Now, we like doggies. I have a little French bulldog, and we call him Prince William, and he's a very regal dog, even though he's Small of stature, um, he is uh, very large in personality, and he he kind of runs our house, just halfway at least. Um, but that isn't the dog he's talking about here. If you go to the Middle East, even today, dogs kind of run wild, and they're nasty, they're mean, they're, they're they're mangy, they're ugly, they're stinky. They're just not something you want to cuddle up with, right? And so that's the dog he's talking about. This like a mangy old mutt is what he's talking about. And he's saying it's better to be a mangy old mutt than the idea of this regal lion. So it's, it's better to be a mangy old mutt that's alive than a regal lion that's dead. Why? Because at the end of our life, the chapter's over. It's, the life that we had is gone, it's over, it's done. It's no more. And he wants us to see that, that life is part of that vapor, that short-lived thing, that will indeed have an end. It has a close. Um, and so, you go to the New Testament, you see the same idea reflected. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 30, uh, 27, it says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And So what Solomon is getting at here is say. Your life, the moments you have are, are are precious and there is an end to it. Death is inevitable. It's an evil thing, yes, it is a cause because of evil and death and, and sin in our lives, but it is also the close of our life. There's no redo, there's no second chances. Okay, and that's where he's getting us to here. Is everybody cheered up yet? Okay, now he's gonna make it even better. Okay, this is the worst part about it, I think is that life, that death, excuse me, its timing is uncertain. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. He says, and again, we're jumping down. I'm skipping a section here on purpose. Again, I saw that under the sun, the, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the, to the intelligent, nor favor with the knowledge... For to those with knowledge, but time and chance happened to them all. He's saying it doesn't matter how rich you were, how smart you were, how crafty you were, how dumb you were. It doesn't matter. You know, that's normally how we think about it. If you're faster, you win the race, right? Unless you're in that story about the tortoise. Right. Um, he's saying it doesn't matter what you did, what you didn't do. Okay? It says this, time and chance happened to them all. You go on verse 12, for a man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Now some, of, some people have a chance to get ready and prepare and so on. I don't care. say, so for example, my uncle had, um, he had throat cancer. And we, we were waiting for him to die for over a year or two. I can't remember. I remember but at the end of it, we, we stopped praying that he would be healed and pray that he would go quickly. We'd gotten to that point. But even when he died, it was like, oh, it takes your breath. It's, it's that moment. You just oh, it was, finally came, you know, and it's, it, death does that, doesn't it? It always comes sudden. It, 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 and so he's saying, none of us know the moment. Of our death. None of us know. Because it comes when it wants to come. And so. In light of this. In light of the fact that we're all going to die. It's inevitable. It's an evil thing caused by the sin and death of this world. And it's the close of our life. It's the end of the the chapter. And we have no idea when it's going to happen. How should we live in light of that? How should we live in that? And that's what he gets at here in the center Portion of this passage. How should we live in light of the fact of death? So, how should we live? We need to live accordingly. If all this is true, we need to. And so he 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 gives a surprising answer. I think. Now uh, we we structure our paragraphs differently than they did in the Hebrew language. We like to do a you know a topic sentence, and we support it with the supporting idea. Hebrew language, very often they would couch their main idea right in the center of the, of, the art, of, their, of their section or passage or whatever. And that's what he does here in verses 7 through 10. So read with me in verses 7 through 10. You got it for me? All right. Okay. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments... Be always white, let not oil be lacking from your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So live accordingly. You're going to die, so live accordingly. Live in light of that reality. Now, um, he, he kind of answers in a way we might not expect, right? He's, we might think he would say, freak out, despair, plan, you know, start trying to figure out ways we, cannot, we can avoid this. and You know, that's normally our response. Let's figure out ways we can try not to think about this. Let's try to figure out ways we can prolong this. We can keep ourselves safe and secure and whatever. And, we, and we, we, that's not our normal response to this. And his is, go eat and have a good time. I can't help but think of a, a movie, one of my favorite movies. A young uh, professor goes to teach a classroom full of young men uh, English and literature. Uh, and trying to get them to realize the importance of the moments of their lives. He takes them into the main hallway of the school, into this trophy case. And he says, and, he, and in this trophy case, there's p- p- old pictures of, form, of class, classes that had gone on before. And he said, look at these guys in these pictures. They look a lot like you, don't they? They, they probably had the same dreams, the same aspirations, the same hopes, the same whatever that you do. And guess what? Now they're fertilizer for daisies. They're long, long gone. And he said, I wonder if they maximized, if they, if they were able to make out those hopes. Were they able to, to live those dreams? And he says, Draw close. Gets all the students to get real close because I want y'all to hear. Listen, listen to what he's saying. And it's "carpe carpe diem." Seize the day. Seize the moments while you have them. Y'all, y'all remember this? Seize the day because life is short. And you are going to die one day. Now, that is a very pagan, we already talked about this early on, that this is a response to the idea that life is short, is that we would, we, that life has really no meaning outside of God, is that we would create meaning. We'll grab it and white knuckle it, and we, we'll be like the existentialist who creates meaning in the face of meaninglessness. And how just absurd that becomes. And that's, I, I don't want us to go there. But I think what um, Robin Williams' character in Dead Poet Society definitely points us to is that life is short, that we it does end, whether we like it or not. And so, what does it look like for us to seize the day? Okay, however, I, I would like to add to this. Because he's not just, I think what so is doing here isn't he's not just leaving us with just do the best you can and hope for the best kind of idea what he's saying is is we need to seize the day but then maybe add a, a another latin phrase to it so carpe diem seize the day corum deo before the face of god that we would live our lives not just Struggling, doing it like Solomon's already talked about the futility and pointlessness of trying to suck meaning out of this life in itself. And so, what does it look like for us to seize the day in light of who God is, and in light of in in, in God's presence for His glory? And He's going to tell us that. And he tells us, He gives us a really a practical list of what it looks like to live. Seizing the day in the presence of God. So look at me in verse 7. He says, go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. And so he's telling us to, to enjoy what God has given us. We've already mentioned this, but there's this constant idea that we just live hoping for more. Longing for more, discontentedness, trying to achieve more and more and more, instead of just stopping and being thankful for what God has already given us. See, that we would be thankful, and and here's the thing, that we would do it in joy, this idea of joy and thankfulness as a gift from God, okay? In other words, we would do all, even as we eat and we drink, we have our wine and we enjoy life, that we would do it not trying to find satisfaction in those things themselves, but we we would do them for the purpose that they have, which is for God's glory. I mean, think about the mercy and and love of God and just food. Let's talk about food for a minute. Just a second. I like food. But here's the thing. You know, biologically, You know, in the the scheme of the evolutionary scheme of things, the 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 differences of taste and and the pleasure that taste bring us really has no reason. All we really need is be able to see and smell and discern enough that food won't kill us and that it will nourish our body to keep moving. Have you ever noticed that a lot of um, other creatures that aren't human some humans, um, will eat anything as long as it won't, maybe won't kill them. But even some of them don't even get it, right? That's But that's all you need for your, the survival of the fittest to, to perpetuate your species is not to eat something that kills you. But why would God create food in the, in the varieties of taste? And why would he give us the range of taste buds in our bodies and so on so that we could taste you know the difference between double chocolate ice cream and not chocolate ice cream or like my kids love what's it, uh, uh, chocolate trinity or just plain old chocolate because God is good to us and he wants us to enjoy chocolate trinity Amen. yes right now, here's the problem, though. The problem comes when we, when the pleasure itself becomes the end. And, and pleasure itself becomes the end. Then pleasure itself becomes diminished and becomes the problem. Not, not a reason to glorify and love God. For example, I, I loved this. In, um, the, in the C.S. Lewis's book, The, the Screwtape Letters, it's a... Letters between demons who are trying to um, uh, get their clients who are humans to uh, turn away from God and reject him in all these different ways or whatever. And uh, there's a really interesting portion in which uh, I think Wormtongue is telling his um, uh, protege I can't remember the the names of them or whatever, uh, to, to be careful with pleasure. Listen to what he says. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure... In its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. That's talking about God. Okay, I know we have won a mini-soul through pleasure. At the same time, it is God's invention, not ours. He goes on to talk about how they've tried. The demons have tried to create pleasure, but they really haven't. Done, been successful yet? Say, He made the pleasures, and all our research so far has not enabled us to produce one pleasure. All we can do is encourage the human to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which He has forbidden. See it? In other words, pleasure is from God, created by Him as a gift for us, for a reason, for a purpose and as soon as we stop using it for how God has intended and how he has purposed it it begins to become corrupted and actually begins to become something that's terrible and that's so, but what he's saying here, Solomon is saying here is eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, why? This, I love this part, for God has already approved it Why would God create it if he didn't want us to enjoy it? Christians are like capital um, offenders when it comes to just being miserable. It's like Christianity equals misery. I, I grew up thinking, you know, to be a Christian meant to be a miserable, unhappy person. Because all I ever heard him say is, don't do any that, don't do this, don't do that, don't... And it was always telling us not to, to avoid good things in life. And I thought, man, they're just trying to ruin all the fun. And they got it wrong. Because God wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to enjoy it for, in, its re, in the right context for the right purposes. Now, let's go on. So he says, enjoy and be thankful for the good things in life. Then, verse 8, he, sa- he he says this. Let your garments always be white, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Okay, now this is not an advertisement for uh, dry cleaning or doTERRA. Now, if you're a doTERRA advocate, um, that's cool. You can do that, okay? essential. This is not essential oils and like, you know, whatever, okay? These, this... <laughs> A little different context here, okay? What he's saying is, is, okay. first of all, keep your garments white. And in the ancient Near East, actually the the Middle East even today, it's such a dry, hot, arid climate. The idea of keeping your garments white was a very practical idea of keeping yourself cool in the hot, dry, arid sun. Okay, and then secondly... This idea of keeping oil upon your head is is kind of the twin ideas that, you know, it's, it's, you know, in the dry, hot, arid sun and and climate of the Middle East is you would keep oil on your body so that you wouldn't dry out and crack and bleed and do all these other things. So what he's basically saying is take care of yourself. So some would say, oh, I'm just going to die anyway. Give me a donut. They're good, you know. I mean, like <laughs> my kids, you know. Like, well, who cares? You're not know, gonna have a couple beers. extra because I'm gonna, I'm gonna die anyway, you know. No, he's saying, <laughs> you know, you know, seize the day, live, and take care of your body as if you're gonna live forever, because he's given this body and this life to us as a gift. And so, if taking care of yourself is doTERRA, cool. All right. And so, it's kind of a counterintuitive. You think, oh, he's going to say, you know, just live it up and party it up. Don't do No. You know, take care of your body. Take care of yourself. And that sometimes that means denying our, the pleasures. Sometimes it's a barbell. Which I'm feeling all over me today. Okay? So, take care of yourself. Verse 9, he says, yes. Okay? Enjoy the wife with whom you love all the days of your life. Vapor life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil in which you toil under the sun. And he's alluded to this idea many other times. And, and he's using this idea of wife. And that is, very, and so if you're a wife, you obviously don't have a wife. Okay, but principally he, here he's saying is love the people in your life. Particularly those closest to you, and sometimes are the hardest to love, right? Let's say it. The closer and the more you know somebody, the harder it is to love them. That bad breath, that morning bad breath, and all the stuff that comes along with getting close to somebody, it's harder to love there. Let's just spread that out, though, because some of us, you know, he's not, you apply this. More generally, it's the idea that God is our calling, the toil in our life. Our main purpose in this life is to love people and that God has put in our lives. Starting with the closest to us, spreading out from there. And that we would love the people God has put in our lives. And it can't help but remind me of, uh, we mentioned him already, but when um, I read an article and a testimony about jobs at the end of his life, He's laying there looking, he actually says this, as I look at the ventilator, and just realize that all the success, the money, the fame, all that he had achieved meant nothing at this point. And now he regretted not having spent the time with the people he loved. Okay, and then verse 10, he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge and wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now, this is Old Testament here. Let me just explain this very quickly. And Solomon, and like every Jew, believed that when you died, you went to a dark, shadowy place called Sheol, waiting for God's redemption and so on. Um, we know now when we die, and if we are dying in Christ, we go immediately into the presence of Christ Himself. Amen, right? Okay, but what he's saying is, um, the life that you have been given, live it with you, all of your might. You know you're going to die. You don't know when. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. So go for it. Enjoy it. Go with, Live it with abandon. Go after it. So in light of the impending and inevitable death, we should all live life to the fullest and with abandon for God's glory. John Piper talks about this. He says, don't waste your life. You know, God is not going to usher you into the kingdom saying, what was your golf swing like? How many shells did you collect? You know, that's the illustrations he used. You know what I mean? Like, how many promotions did you get? How, how big was your house? Th- none of that is going to matter in your life. How, most of us are, are so worried about our lives and so worried about where it's going. We're afraid to just live them and go for it. Take some risks. I, I love there was a um, pastor named, um, uh, what was his name? Uh, Francis Chan. He gave a sermon, and he, had on, he was giving a sermon about this very idea. And on the stage, he had a balance beam set up. And he was like, can you imagine if you went to the Olympics or to a, to a um, gymnastics co- competition, and the, 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 the girl gets up there, the competitor gets up on this balance beam, and instead of just going for it and enjoying and, and going with it with abandon." Instead, like, falls down on it, hangs on, and says, oh, I, I want to be safe. You know, I don't want anything bad to happen. We, I mean, we would laugh the person off, or we would be really embarrassed for this person. Because he's, like, lay, sitting there hanging on. That's what we do. We're like, oh, we've got to be safe. You know, we don't want to cause, you know, cause any trouble. We don't want anything like this. Instead of just living our life for God's glory with abandon. And I don't know what that means for you guys, specifically. But most of us are just trying to be safe and comfortable and avoid any kind of problem. But here's the thing. Death coming, no matter how safe you play it, no matter how comfortable and calm you try to keep your life. And so here's the thing. Oh, death is the end of our life here under the sun. The the good news, the gospel is. Is that for those who are in Christ, this chapter is ends, the chapter is closed, it is not the end of our story. Now we need to realize that this is the chapter we're in, and when it closes, it's done. There's no no repeats, there's no do-overs, anything like that. But the good news is that God has destroyed death itself. That by sending his son Jesus to live a life fulfilling all the covenant demands we could never live out. And to die a death paying the penalty for us breaking and rebelling against him. In that death and him being raised from the dead three days later. He has destroyed and done away with death forever. We have that hope. And so we know that whatever happens, no matter if my life is only you know, twenty minutes away to an ending. Twenty years, I know it's not the end of the story. I know there's a lo- there's another chapter. And so he, the larger question becomes: What does it look like to live my life knowing it's going to end? However, it never ends. So here's some questions for you: Are you ready to die? We we at any moment need to ask ourselves if I die on the way home, am I ready? Am I ready to meet Jesus? And let me just tell you how to be ready. It's very simple. It's that you've believed, you trusted on what He has done, you trusted on His work on the cross, forgiving you declaring you righteous, and making you a son of, daughter of God, and you've received that free gift, if you've done that, you're ready. It doesn't matter what you've done, how poorly you've lived, how much evil or good you've done in your life, that's all that matters. And so my challenge to you, are you ready? Secondly, are you seizing the day before the face of God? You know, you, uh, y'all going to sound like you know something else. You're going to say, Carpe Diem corum Deo. Seize the day before the face of God. Are you living your life as if it was a vapor? It's going to end. Let's just go for it. What does that mean? And I, you know what it means for me? Let me just tell you personally what it means. Because you know, whether whatever job or c- career you may have or whatever, I think this should be at some level, all of us as God's people would say, I want to take with me as many as I can take. I, I'm going down with as many people and souls as I can see go into the kingdom. Whatever that means, I'm going for it. Right? And so, uh, the, I, mean, I think at some level. Now, that doesn't mean I can't enjoy my chocolate trinity And it doesn't mean I'm not going to take care of myself and all that stuff. And I'm not going to love those people in my life. But we are called to take as many with us as we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and and these words to us.